Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome to Rebel Heroines, the podcast celebrating the women of Greek mythology and the women who write about them through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews and interviews with authors and fellow fans. So I've just finished reading Medea by Krista Wolfe. As I talked about in the Sorceresses episode briefly, there's versions of Medea where she doesn't kill the children, where the Corinthians kill them. Euripides' play Where She Does has become the seminal version, perhaps because of the controversial ending. This book in style reminds me of Margaret Atwood, and it's interesting because it goes with a version where Medea's only crime is not knowing her place as the inhabitants of Corinth revere, then reject her in her mysterious otherness. Medea doesn't make herself invisible. She doesn't fall in line. We get to hear the voice of Jason and some original characters who give you conflicting ideas about Medea, and we also get to hear from Glauke, Jason's new wife, and she's particularly sympathetic. So recommend Medea by Krista Wolf. So this month we are focusing on the warrior heroines, the women who wielded swords and went hunting and waged war It's interesting because the witchy women we discussed last month, when they step out of society's boundaries, get demonised and rejected, whereas the warrior women get begrudging respect because it's okay to hunt and fight like a man. However, they by no means get the same recognition as their male counterparts. And yet, they have very different lives from most of the rebel heroines we've talked about so far. They are unconventional and bold in a more active masculine way, but that doesn't mean they just want to be men. They attempt to carve out the same freedom afforded to men by taking the same risks, but remain authentic and loyal to their tribes. Before we meet the mortal women, let's start with Greek mythology's most unconventional goddess, Artemis, goddess of the hunt, of childbirth, the moon, and known for being a bit of a ruthless type when it comes to demanding respect. Artemis is a fascinating goddess because, unlike the rest of her fellow Olympians, she spends most of her time hunting with her tribe of women in the forests of Greece, which is 
very uncharacteristically indulgent of her dad, Zeus, to let her do that, really. She doesn't get involved in a lot of the big dramas of Olympus. She generally does her own thing and she doesn't need anyone else, thank you. No one gives her little brother Apollo this memo, however, and he's a constant, irritating presence in her life, it seems, throwing his morbid fascination with his sister's virginity around like he's doing her a massive favour. Something really interesting I found out about Artemis from Carla Iniesco's podcast, The Goddess Project, was that Artemis was around for a long time in various different mythologies before Apollo turned up. And it's almost like to curb her independent, rebellious spirit, they had to give her a petulant, jealous brother who's always turning up going, hey, someone dissed our mum, let's go stab them up. Also, has anyone tried to have it off with you, by the way, because I'll stab them up too, no problem. I feel for Artemis having Apollo as a brother because he's just the worst. And if you think I'm being harsh here, listen to Carla's episode all the ways Apollo sucks. There are many in many myths. He's actually worse than I thought. The first thing Artemis does after she is born is help her mother Leto give birth to little baby Apollo, who was probably cute for about 10 minutes before he shut up and started falling in love with people, then being a total dick to them when they rejected him. I mean, Artemis is no picnic. She sets the hunter Acteon's own hands on him when she turns him into a stag for daring to look on her and her nymphs when she was bathing with them. And this throws up that Artemis is every bit as ruthless as her fellow Olympians, but where most of them use mortals as amusing playthings to destroy then abandon, she uses her power as defence. She gets straight to the point and doesn't whack some nasty curse on them. Yeah, Apollo, you know what I'm talking about, Cassandra, etc. She won't stand for an invasion of her private world in which she has made herself and her women safe and free from the usual tyranny. It's interesting that when she does display this jealous goddess behaviour, like the punishing of a woman who claims her children are more beautiful than the children of Leto, she's with Apollo. You can imagine the whole slaughtering of that woman's children was his idea and that she ordinarily wouldn't give a shit about physical beauty bragging. When she demands Agamemnon sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia in retribution for killing one of her sacred deer so that the army can get the wind to sail to Troy, again she's demanding respect in a way that throws up to this arrogant, warmongering fool that is Agamemnon. Okay, you want to go invade a shiny city that's bigger than yours and be a big hero? Fine. But there are consequences. And she's very much playing the long game here, knowing that when the consequence is an innocent girl, that girl's mother is going to mess you up when you get back from your big toxic masculinity adventure. Cue Clytemnestra with a big fucking axe. You want to step over innocent virgin girls to get your glory big guy? Then you have to look your own daughter in the eye as you cut her throat. There's something to give you nightmares for the rest of your life. Stuff you. Ivigenia obviously gets a raw deal here, of course, but in one version, Artemis spirits her away as a deer at the crucial moment. Again with Artemis, stuff the men, save the girls. 
She's a goddess that can deal out accidental feminist justice, albeit double-edged, in an otherwise patriarchal world. So yes, she is merciless in that regard, but she is at least direct and uncompromising. And why shouldn't she be? It seems as though when patriarchy clamped down on the Greek myths, it saddled each goddess with a overtly masculine role, as in Athena and her love of a good scrap, or with a fatal flaw of jealousy in a philandering husband for Hera, or an ugly, boring husband to keep her libido in check, as with Aphrodite. They couldn't quite douse Artemis's power fully down, even when they fashioned an Apollo around her. Unlike the other goddesses, she is is very much one who seems to have retained a certain amount of wildness that links to the earthy natural world, that link shared with Dionysus, Persephone, Hecate. She's carved out a different path that doesn't always lead back to Olympus, but she can still walk with the gods. She's respected, but she's still a rebel, this freedom to run wild, Here's a beautiful poem about Artemis from Nikita Gill's book, Great Goddesses. The Moon Goddess There is something moon-soaked and dawn-flavoured about her, something kissed by the wind and loved by lightning. She, the goddess of storm-hunting and wolves and moonlight magic, she, the queen of the forest, of womanhood more brutal than tragic. Artemis, with this link to the moon, really goes back to that divine feminine thing about the magic of the dark, the unconscious, the unknown, the wild, the realm of Gaia, what goes on in the shadows before Apollo turns up with his blazing, merciless light. What's also interesting about Artemis is her relationship with Orion, a giant and a skilled hunter who had the privileged position of joining Artemis's hunting party. There's a few different versions of what happened next, but the prominent one is that Orion was Artemis's lover and Apollo, yeah, here we go again with this arsehole, tricked her into killing him. This doesn't resonate that much with Artemis for me. It seems she much preferred the company of women. In other versions, Orion raped one of Artemis's nymphs and she punished him, which is more in keeping with her character. And there are several myths where she turns her nymphs into bears or rivers after they've been violated by men. And this does smack of Hera's usual behaviour. But at the same time, instead of making it so her nymphs burst into flames or get endlessly tormented, she turns them into eternal aspects of nature. In her goddessy way, she's giving them back the only power she can up against the Zeus energy because you can't force yourself on a river or try and seduce a bear. They are of Gaia and they are not in the submit or die game anymore. It is a bit harsh that she doesn't continue to let them stay in her tribe when they need it the most, but... She does give them more power as these forces or creatures of nature than they would have had staying as nymphs. The nymphs really are sexual cannon fodder in Greek myth. Artemis is the only one who seems to have their back in any regard. 
There is so much more to Artemis than we can fit into one episode, which is why I will be interviewing Carla from The Goddess Project in a special episode dedicated just to Artemis later on this month, and we'll be unpacking her lasting influence in modern goddess culture. In the meantime, do check out her amazing book about Artemis, She Who Hunts. I'll put the information in the show notes. So let's move on to the only Greek woman in the myths who gets to have her very own hero-style, spear-throwing, ass-kicking, boar-hunting adventure, Atalanta. Atalanta is the daughter of a king who dumps her on a mountainside to die because, yeah, you guessed it, he wanted a boy. What good is a girl? Well, we'll see, shall we? Atalanta is nursed by a she-bear, is adopted by a bunch of kindly hunters who teach her how to be a badass, ends up becoming a votress of Artemis and even ends up on the Argo as part of Jason's crew to retrieve the Golden Fleece. And if you think that's impressive, there's more. She kills a massive boar on a hunt and when some of the men try to take all the credit, a man actually kills them and gives Atalanta her dues. I know, right? Who is this guy? More about him later. So she's finally got dad's attention and he decides to claim her and right away tries to marry her off. She says, sure, dad, I'll marry any man who can beat me in a foot race. And her dad laughs and says, oh, aren't you sweet thinking you can outrun a man? So he sends for eligible men from all over the shop and very quickly learns that Atalanta's superpower is running really fucking fast. Screw you, worst dad ever. Which makes you wonder why she came back into the royal fold at all, really. We'll speculate on that later. Unfortunately, her dad then declares that if the men lose, they die. But they still keep trying because they're all puffed up idiots who don't think girls can run. And Atalanta keeps proving them wrong and watching the corpses pile up. And to be honest, why shouldn't she? I mean... There's an excess of puffed up idiots in Greek myth. Let's get rid of a whole bunch of them in one go, shall we? But then a man with some humility and brains comes along, begs Aphrodite to help him beat Atalanta because he's all like in love with her and everything because she's just different, you know? And Aphrodite never want to turn down an opportunity to stir up some love gives him some golden apples to throw in front of Atalanta on the track. And of course, even warrior women can't resist a bit of bling, am I right, ladies? So she slows down to pick up the apples, he wins, and then she has to marry him. I like to think she fancied him back and totally let him win. Again, we'll come back to this. So... Atalanta and her hubby seem to get on quite well. It's a bit of a love match. However, in their later years, they decide to go get it on in the wrong grove and offend either Artemis, Zeus or Rhea, depending on which myth you read, and they get themselves turned into lions, which may seem pretty tragic on the surface, but not necessarily. We'll come back to this as well. So, Emily Hauser, 
who I will be interviewing about her latest non-fiction book, Ancient Love Stories, in a bonus episode later this month, is author of the Golden Apple Trilogy. And one of those novels is focused around Atalanta. But I'd like to dive into a more recent novel about her in the form of Jennifer Saint's Atalanta. This is my favourite Jennifer Saint novel so far. In it, we get to meet a formidable and complex goddess in the form of Artemis, who has made a haven in the forest away from Olympus and the world of men for her and her nymphs. And she takes Atalanta into the fold, but makes it very clear as she grows up that men are not welcome, not to be trusted and not to be indulged. A young, eager-to-please Atalanta is like, yeah, who needs men? Stuff them. But as it becomes apparent that Atalanta is growing into a force to be reckoned with, Artemis sends her off to represent her on the Argo. And that seemed a bit contradictory for me, for Artemis at first. Why would she send her charge out into the world of men to earn points for her? But then by doing that, she sets Atalanta on a course where she has the chance to prove her worth, to be an action heroine, to put her skills to use, to carve out her own freedom in the world of men. Atalanta isn't a pampered princess who naively decides she wants to reject all her privilege and go and be a warrior like the big boys. She's born to the wilderness. To her, being a princess is unnatural. She seems to need the thrill of the hunt. She needs opponents who match her. She's very much, I think, who Artemis would be if she were mortal and didn't have the responsibility to the Olympians or a divine brother on her heels all the time, demanding, tell me who's trying to shag you so I can kill him. When Artemis is away from her nymphs in this novel, she's helping pregnant women who are struggling rather than sitting in Olympus and meddling with mortals from on high. She feels real in the context of what we associate with her, rather than just being a ruthless punisher. She's a she-bear protector rather than an indulgent mother. She's as compassionate as she can be, considering who she is and where she's from. So after impressing the crew of the sausage fest that is the Argo, enough to take her seriously, Atalanta gets to go on a quest, a rare privilege for a girl. And on this quest, she meets one of the few decent mortal men of Greek myth, Maliga. You may remember him from the Titanesses episode where I interviewed Rosie Garland about her novel The Fates. Maliga is the one who, when he's born, has the fates telling his mother he will die when the log in the fire is burned up. Maliga despite having a wife, falls for Atalanta and in the myths, she is in true Artemis style, a staunch, chaste virgin. There's more to her in this version and it works without making her just another love-struck heroine. She has believable sexuality that doesn't diminish her power as a woman who has declared herself the equal of men and feels no inclination to seduce or indulge them despite her lack of experience with them. Maliga is decent because he defies his own uncles when he says in front of all the boar hunters, we all saw Atalanta deliver the killer blow to this wild boar who has been ravaging our city. 
A boar sent by Artemis, by the way. Again, she's playing the long game so her girl can strut her stuff. And this demand for respect and a fair share of the spoils for this rare woman who has proved herself to be the equal of any of them costs him dearly in a way he never could have foreseen. But the fact that he does it at all means he's a nice bloke. I know, right? I totally fancied him. I'll let you know when The Fates is out and we'll be reviewing it and I'm looking forward to seeing more of Maliga. Something else I found particularly satisfying in this novel was the nuance around Medea basically being the one who won all the glory for the Argonauts through her magic. That for all the Argonauts' combined strength and bravery, and Atalanta is as hungry for glory as they all are. And again, it doesn't make her just another feisty girl who wants to be a hero. Their victory is somewhat hollow because it was only ever magic that was going to retrieve this magical object not the ability to stab up monsters with brute force. You can see this weighing on Jason as he starts to realise he's bitten off more than he can chew with the woman he now owes his life and reputation to. Medea's motivations unpacked that in a very satisfying way. I also appreciated how Atalanta is given a legitimate reason, after winning renown and glory for her goddess, to then get drawn into indulging the father who abandoned her. She does it because it serves her purposes, not because her adventure is now over and she's had her fun playing a big boy stuff and needs to settle down and marry an asshole who will curb her. Hippomenes, Hippomenes, let's just call him Hippo, yeah? Hippo, the clever man who concocts the foot race cheating, again in the book, is a decent man who she does actually meet earlier when she gets him out of a sticky spot. So there's this bond beforehand rather than her unknowingly saddling herself to a stranger who has essentially turned her power against her by proving she's just another fickle girl who likes shiny things. And as for the ending, well, you can see her transformation as punishment in the original myths, but it resonates with me that Jennifer Saint's given her heroine the chance to keep being wild and free and fierce with her lover. It's a great book that lets Atalanta retain all the good stuff from the original myth. The fact that there's a girl warrior at all is something, but she does get dragged back into duty and domesticity, in this version, it's her choice and she gets to forge her own destiny and still be a force to be reckoned with. Atalanta gets to go on the hero's journey as a woman without being passively aggressively punished for her audacity. If you read Psyche and Eros by Luna McNamara after reading this novel, you get a nice chronological journey through Atalanta's life. She is the ageing huntress who becomes the mentor, the Chiron-like figure for the young Psyche, who again is not your average princess and has got it into her head that she has to learn to kill monsters since it's been prophesied that she must marry one. Atalanta teaches her charge not only how to track and hunt, but one or two things about men as well, such as marry a man like Maliga. Certainly agree with you on that, love. I totally would have married him. So let's meet 
the most famous warrior woman of all Greek myth, Penthesilia, queen of the Amazons. How badass is she? She saunters up to Achilles and says, Come on then, pretty boy, show me what you got. Let's dance. That's how badass she is. That's how I like to think it went down anyway when they met on the battlefield of Troy because out of all Achilles' opponents who he sliced up with ease because he's a psychotic king machine, I don't care how fit he is, she was the most formidable. She had him running scared for a minute. Why, you may ask? Well, the Amazons were a fearsome bunch of warrior women from the Black Sea or maybe Libya. They got around. They were from some place real, real far away. And the Greeks were fascinated with them and had a mixture of fear and all verging on eroticism, probably because they were so unlike their own women in that they were the exact opposite of domesticated and silent. They had all the brutal fighting skills of their most fearsome male counterparts, but they were women. That in itself must have been provocative. To add to the scandal, they didn't have husbands or even men in their tribes to keep them in check. They didn't have a fixed abode to defend. They were nomadic. They didn't play by the rules. They made their own. And most importantly, they stuck together. They weren't in it for their own individual glory. There's a lot of myths around them that probably weren't true. Like the thing about them chopping one boob off just so they could shoot arrows. And it seems they were an endless source of controversy. And you can see why an all-female warrior tribe who answered to no one but each other would be for that culture at the time. It seems it was all going well for the Amazons until the Greek heroes showed up. Hercules turns up to claim Hippolyta's belt she was Penthesilea's sister, as one of his labours and he kidnaps her and then kills her when her tribe comes to rescue her. And in other versions, it's that dick Theseus who kidnaps her. If you know Midsummer Night's Dream, we meet Theseus and Hippolyta in that and we get Theseus bragging that he's tamed the wild beast with his lover man prowess. Sometimes it's Antiope, I think that's how you say it instead of Hippolyta. Sometimes he doesn't kidnap her. She falls in love with him, apparently. Whatever. No one ever loved you, Theseus. No one. No one. And if they said they did, they lied to protect themselves from your psychoness. I know he's not real, but just the idea of him and how that's been revered over so many centuries as this epitome of like, you know, the great hero. It just irritates me, man. In Emily Hauser's To the Immortal, we meet Hippolyta and Hercules and get a fresh insight into that encounter between the Amazons and their tormentors. Penthesilea gets her own ubiquitous Greek asshole in the form of Achilles. She brings her warriors to Troy to aid Priam when it looks like all is lost and she brings them to honour his cleansing of her after she accidentally killed her sister. And everyone has total faith in her skills that she can beat the unbeatable Achilles and damn, she comes so close. 
They have a single combat showdown and she proves that even a god king can bleed. Watch 300 if you want to know where that reference comes from. It's full of toxic masculinity, verging on homoerotic porn, but damn, Leonidas is one crazy sexy bastard. Gerard Butler in his glory days, humana humana. Anyway, where were we? So Penthesilea is also smart enough to know when she's beaten, so she makes a run for it on her horse when she realises Achilles is just going to stab her up, and he brings her down and sadly kills her. And this is where it gets bittersweet and downright weird in some versions. For an insight into the different versions, see Natalie Haynes's Pandora's Jar. Hey, Natalie. Can't wait for Divine Might, babe. Already love it. So enamoured is Achilles of his most formidable opponent when he removes her helmet and sees her fierce beauty that he falls in love with her and rages and weeps with remorse that he's killed her. Way to go, Achilles! Finally see a woman as something more than objectify over than fuck after you've stabbed her up. You need therapy, dude. There's a great poetic novel by Elizabeth Cook called Achilles where she describes their fight with hints of sensuality. And it works because it shows up how had these two met in different circumstances, they would have been perfect for each other. If any woman could have woken him up to himself and taught him to respect women, it would have been Penthesilea. Here's a little quote. His hand fits her face perfectly. It's mask. He peels it away with a sense of wonder and finds beneath it a face he could love. In the Robert Graves version, it's quite different. We get full-on necrophilia happening. Like I said, Achilles needs a lot of therapy. Let's move on. Penthesilea also makes an appearance in The Firebrand by Marion Zimmer Bradley, who I've talked about before, author of the Arthurian legend from the perspectives of the women, the mists of Avalon. The Firebrand is her doing something similar with the Trojan War, and it's focused on Cassandra, who makes an unexpected trip across the sea to hang out and train with the Amazons. I liked a version of the Cassandra story where she got to leave Troy before it all kicked off and meet some formidable warrior women. It's a refreshing take. Check it out. And of course, you can also meet her in A Thousand Ships by, yeah, here she is again, Natalie Haynes. Love you. Not in a stalkery way. Don't panic. So, it's a shame Penthesilea doesn't make it into the Iliad, the seminal lasting text of the Trojan War. It's finished before she gets there, and it really could have done with her legacy and her balancing out all that testosterone. Though the Amazons do continue to fascinate and inspire popular culture, Wonder Woman, of course, is based on the Amazons. The way these warrior women stir up warrior men in Greek myth is intriguing, unnerving and proof that, again, as with the witchy women and the so-called monsters, they didn't know what to do with power they couldn't conquer or understand, even when it came towards them in a familiar guise as an equal opponent. 
It's intriguing that these women were briefly allowed to spar on the battlefield, in the hunting grounds, on quests as the equals of men, but that they then had their warrior wings clipped, either through being saddled with a toxic brother always on their heels or or dragged back into the marriage bed or being defeated in a fight they wouldn't ordinarily have got drawn into yet. While they were allowed to shine, they certainly gave the so-called heroes a run for their money and, unlike them, had more at stake and more noble causes to fight for than just glory. They fought to protect each other, to carve out their own destinies, their own safe spaces, to honour allegiances, but they always retained their authentic warrior spirit And the landscape of Greek myth would just be one big sausage fest bloodbath for the sake of ego without them. So thank you to the warrior women of Greek myth. I salute you. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please do go back and listen to past episodes. If you haven't yet, please like and subscribe. Please tell your friends. Please do check out the reading list if you want to read more books around these subjects. I've also got a pretty funky Spotify playlist of Greek myth-inspired music, and that will all be in the show notes. If you are a female poet, writer, who would like to contribute some of your content to the podcast, please do get in touch. You can email me at lornaemehan at gmail.com. So as I said, we will be having a crossover episode with The Goddess Project, all about Artemis, later on in September, as well as a cheeky bonus episode with Emily Hauser. So a lot of Greek myth, rebel heroine, good coming at you in September. Watch this space.